At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I don't plan ahead and I don't have room for a cooler and I don't have a car and I don't have a garage. So really our advice is don't prepare. Don't bring a cooler. <laughs> Eat at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> this is Food 52's Burnt Toast. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. And for our show today, we made a bet that you might be on the road. Or maybe you've just re-entered society from a vacation or you're looking forward to one in the coming days. Maybe you're on the road right this very minute, heading to a rental somewhere remote and a little less connected than wherever it is you live. August is the great American vacation season, so we thought it was the right time to discuss road trips. Straight ahead, you'll hear me and the author of Food 52's Genius Recipes talk about road trip food. We'll try to tell you to throw out all of your plans, for one. And Brittany Luce from Gimlet's awesome show Sampler will tell you what podcast to download for your trip. But before that, we'll do our best to convince you to take a few detours. Last week on the site, we published an article called 54 Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful American Food Destinations Worth Pulling Over For. It's exactly what it sounds like, a list of charmingly weird food-themed stops around the country that, in writer Sarah Jampel's words, affirm our country's desire to play with our food. Here she is. So I think the seed of the idea came from this amazing plaque in um, Hyde Park in Chicago, Illinois, which is a plaque that commemorates the location where Barack and Michelle Obama first kissed. And it was something, I think that it's been there since 2002 or something, but I want to read aloud what it says. Um, so it's this little plaque on the side of the sidewalk, and it says, On our first date, I treated her to the finest ice cream Baskin Robbins had to offer. Our dinner table doubled as the curb. I kissed her, and it tasted like chocolate. <laughs> And it's this picture of Barack and Michelle Obama kissing. And it's just on a random street in Chicago. And I thought it was hilarious. And I loved kind of the moment of serendipitously stumbling on this food-related plaque. And so I kind of wanted to think about, like, food destinations that would kind of give you the same experience of coming on this plaque, coming upon this plaque of Barack and Michelle and being like, what the heck is this doing here? Like, glad to know it. But yeah. So you were inspired by this plaque. Um, and you wanted to find more things like it. How do you do research for that? So I tried um, crowdsourcing on Food52, which is always a great go-to method because we have so many users from so many different parts of the country and even the world, and I wanted them to weigh in on kind of the weird, quirky things around their hometowns or places they've traveled, and then also just scouring the internet and surveying our team. Like, team at Food52 had a lot of great information. Yeah. So you sent out an email to the entire company and that thread was insane. 
Right. There were things like pumpkin kayak races. And two people who had shad festivals. <laughs> it's like I didn't even know what a shad was. Yes. I didn't know that they had festivals around it. So going off of that, what were some of the wackiest things that you found? My, by far, my favorite is the world's oldest ham, um, <laughs> which you can actually watch the live ham cam <laughs> right now. You don't even have to go to Smithfield, Virginia to see. <laughs> but the story behind the ham is that it was kind of abandoned in the early 20th century for two decades and then they found it in the rafters and this guy basically adopted this ham he even put a collar on it so that people wouldn't steal it <laughs> and it still exists um and you can go see the world's oldest ham and i love it because it's just so strange and you probably wouldn't go out of your way to see it like i don't think i would plan a trip to smithfield virginia to see this ham well i may i might now because i'm so invested in it but I don't know if a Food 52 reader would be like, hey, I'm going to go to Smithfield, Virginia and see this ham. But once you're there, it's so great to be able to tell everyone that you saw this ham. Right. Um. And also, like, <laughs> that might not be the point of uh, a roundup of the weirdest food destinations in the country. It's not necessarily that we need to go plan trips and go find them, but it's more about, like, the human, uh, like, eccentricity of the fact that these things exist yeah, And that, like, grown men have pet hams that are how old now? Uh, how old is it? It's really old. It's over 100 years old, this ham. <laughs> but didn't it also say on the website that it's the world's... It did call it the world's oldest edible ham. I don't know how they could verify that, but I wouldn't try it. <laughs> um, but also, I love how I feel like sometimes... Since we're in this world where people share everything on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and then all three of them, it can kind of feel like everyone's doing the same things. And like if everybody's following this little map going to like the world's best restaurants, it kind of feels like, okay, like we're going to do this thing. We're going to check it off the list. And I feel like with these stranger things, it can be more spontaneous and more a little bit of a sense of discovery. Mm -hmm. Um and a surprise. At the same time, though, Instagram was a really awesome tool for you while you were going through this. So you found you were able to, like, find a ton of pictures on Instagram for each one of these things. Yeah. It was really great to verify that um, the monument or statue or park still existed really just by using the Instagram geotags and seeing how people posed with all these strange things. Um, there was a lot there, there's a world's largest bull, um, and there are a lot of pictures that we could not put in the post because they were PG. They were R-rated with the world's <laughs> largest bull. So um, <laughs> we'll throw some of those on the site. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you can definitely verify that these things exist on Instagram, and it's really funny to see who's going. And it also kind of, I feel like my Instagram, my personal Instagram feed is like food and lifestyle bloggers, and like they're all going to Marfa. And, you know, posing at that Prada store. Um, and it was fun to see a world of Instagram that's more um, families and, like, real people who aren't using Instagram for image crafting but are kind of like, oh, here's my actual road trip here. My kids at the giant artichoke in California. Yeah, it was more documenting and less performative. Yeah, it was realer. Speaking of um, world's largest or world's oldest or world's superlatives, we ran into some conflict with some of the world's largest, right? Yeah. There are two world's largest peanuts. Um, the world's largest peanut is in Ashburn, Georgia, and the world's other largest peanut is in Oklahoma, <laughs> um, but it is not as large. And Roadside America said that it had been stolen 
and then returned. <laughs> but like, how big are we talking here? Oklahoma's largest peanut, let's call it, is not very big. Maybe I don't know, three feet. Three or feet. So. And the world's actual largest peanut is the size of half a car, half a sedan. Wow, that's big. <laughs> they're peanut. big peanuts. So most of these, they're replicas. Yeah. But it's it's hilarious that like all of these things get created, and you can visit the there's a jolly green giant statue. It's also the world's largest because it's the only one. It's in Minnesota, and you can also visit the um, like fiberglass workshop where it was made, and you can go into the backyard of this company, and there are all the it's like the graveyard for all of their statues that didn't go anywhere, and there are giant ice cream cones there. Um, that are kind of just lying on the ground. The thing about the Jolly Green Giant that I love is that there was only a representation of yeah. him standing facing front on whatever all the cans that he was on. Or... And so they had to, like, invent what his backside looked <laughs> <Yeah>. like. <laughs> it's like, who knows? What if he had a tail? Which is a really <laughs> funny question <laughs> to just picture being brought up, like, in a meeting. Yeah. Like, okay, so we're going we're gonna to erect this statue, but, like, we're, we're not sure what his backside looks like. We're going to have to figure that out. Yeah. Was there anything that you hoped to find that you didn't? That's a good question. I think I found a lot of weird things. It was kind of um, a joyful research project where, like, I just couldn't believe that these things existed and that I hadn't seen or heard of so many of them. Um, I would have liked to find more world's oldest things just because I love thinking about the history, like how that got saved and why. But I was pretty satisfied with the wide array of wacky stuff. I think a lot of this was also, like in all seriousness, understanding the importance of these pieces of like, you know, crops or animals to entire parts of the population that on the East Coast and the West Coast and in cities, we just like forget about it. That like corn could be such a huge deal in a place that they want to erect a corn palace and decorate the entire side of it with corn. That's in South Dakota. So like, yes, these are wacky and they're fun and it's nice to laugh at like it's fun to laugh about them in a good hearted way. But also like they're really important. And there's there's a reason why people built the world's largest cow. Or the world's largest artichoke <laughs> yeah. representation. Right. Yeah. So it's fun, but it's also like the livelihood of a lot of people. You learn so much about a lot of cultures that you didn't know mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Just by knowing what kind of statues that they put up. Yeah. When you put up this article, you asked for people to tell you what you forgot in your state. What did you learn? The big duck. I forgot the big duck. It's on Long Island. It was built in 1931. Um, by a farmer to sell ducks and duck eggs. It's just a big duck. (laughs) Uh, But I forgot it. I have never been there. Um, I forgot the world's largest pistachio. Although forgot isn't the right word. I used it, um, so it's my fault. But you had to narrow this list. It was impossible to choose to find everything. And even this morning when I was just kind of going back through the article looking at it, I realized that I included the world's largest nonstick frying pan. But I forgot the world's largest frying pan. So preference given to yeah. things that are easier to make an omelet in. It's 2016 and let's use nonstick. Just kidding. Some, <laughs> sometimes, you know, the old fashioned is best. But so what What overall were your criteria? So I kind of wanted to have a mix of parks and statues. Like you're not going to spend so much time in a statue, but if you go to Hershey Park, you could make a day out of it. 
And I wanted to have a geographic range from all sorts of places so that it wasn't just favoring the East Coast or the Midwest or the South or anything like that. And I was looking to make myself laugh. (laughs) But on your way to the Corn Palace, either one of the world's largest peanuts or any other place you're going, you're going to need some food. So I asked our creative director and author of Genius Recipes, Kristen McGlory, to come talk to me about the best things to eat while you're on the road. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. There are a lot of ways we could have gone with this. We could have come up with a bunch of things to pack or make ahead. We could have given you a bunch of recipes that you can eat with one hand while driving. And that's exactly what Kristen thought I was asking of her. Well, it was funny when you first asked me to talk about genius recipes on a podcast about road food. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't make genius recipes for road trips. Like, (laughs) I am going to have to fake this. I'm going to have to pretend like I make granola ahead and like banana bread ahead and all sorts of nice sandwiches and crudite. (laughs) (laughs) Tea sandwiches. Pack up my cooler. So if you can't tell already, that's not really us. We're food editors who throw food planning out the window on road trips. Mostly, anyway. So the truth is I I don't plan ahead for road trips at all. I mean, I'm usually leaving, um, you know, renting the car an hour before I'm going to leave and then, you know, leaving in the middle of the night hitting a random fast food place on the way, just kind of making do it. I, through um, not having enough time to plan and also just liking to do it that way because it's more fun. So no, I don't really know what it's like to make granola three days ahead of my road trip and be really excited to take it with me. (laughs) But um, what I've learned is that some of the best gifts I've gotten before I'm about to leave on a road trip um, are food that I can take with me, the most thoughtful gifts that people can give when you know that the person that you're giving to is about to leave is to give them something to snack on on the way that's not going to be terrible. So the, the very first time that I learned this was actually when um, our former coworker, Brett Warshaw, who now is the COO of Lucky Peach, um, she knew my birthday was coming up and knew that I was taking a road trip to Maine. And she gave me like w- so many things. She gave me a loaf of banana bread um, her family's favorite blondies, which later became Genius Blondies, um, a thing of Teresi's spicy sauce, um, and I think a bunch of other stuff, honestly. And that road trip was so much better because I was pulling off hunks of banana bread the whole way and, and snacking on the granola the whole way. And then you did something similar like that for this past holiday. Before we closed the office, you handed out, like, containers of granola to everybody and that became my dinner on the way home and it's true you do remember that a lot more and definitely a lot more than eating a slim jim <laughs> on the side of the road <laughs> but eating a slim jim on the side of the road is also part of the joy of a road trip so i feel like one of our second rules is like don't plan that much mm-hmm. because you want to be able to eat along the way <laughs> i'm really i'm really loving the image of you standing on the side <laughs> of the road eating a slim jim <laughs> It's happened. It's happened. It's not uh, It's not my convenience or food of choice, but it's definitely happened. Yeah, you want to be able to, you know, have the, the grubby gas station food that you normally don't allow yourself to have, 
you want to be able to pull over at any roadside shack and not feel like, oh, but the all the sandwiches I made for myself are going to go bad. We'll reiterate, don't plan too much. If you do, you might not end up pulling over after passing signs for U-Pick farm stands or county's best blueberry pie. And if you're driving anywhere in America, the chances are good you'll find them. Your reaction time gets quicker as you see more signs. The first one you see, you're like, oh, should I? And then you keep going and you have to have that resolve that you're going to pull over at the very next one because you have to decide really fast right. when you're driving up the highway. Right. But you also have to pick your battles. So how much stopping is too much stopping? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you have to have someone with you who wants to stop a lot, too, or, or be on your own. But you can't be with someone who is going to get annoyed at the fifth stop to pick up peaches. <laughs> There's one more kind of road trip food that I wanted to chat with you about, and it is the kind of road trip food that you make once you get to a destination. So you're renting a house or an Airbnb or what have you, and you get there and you stay put and you sort of cook for a week. Um, are there staples and standbys that you have? And do you bring kitchen tools and ingredients with you? Which is like the most precious food question in the world. And I want to acknowledge that. But people do it and people advocate for it. So I don't, to go along with the not planning anything very well before I leave, I don't bring anything with me. I just kind of wing it. And that's sort of the fun of it. I mean, yeah, you might end up using some really old, like maybe rancid olive oil or, you know, the recipe calls for kosher salt, and you've definitely only got table salt, that kind of thing. Or you're, but, like, hacking into a tomato with a dull knife yes. that has been on this earth for way too many years. Yes, yes. but but that's okay. Um, but I was very impressed um, one of the trips that I took with you last year <laughs> when you showed up with a mason jar full of vinaigrette that you had made the <laughs> night before, as well as granola for the entire uh, crew. And I just thought that was... The, the ultimate in being prepared to have beautiful salads with, with all the local produce that you picked up along the way. It's almost kind of embarrassing, but I, I, I strongly maintain that one of the reasons I did that is because of thrift. So when I go and stay at a rental house or even, you know, a relative's house, the thing I find mo- most often that's lacking is um, the condiment selection. So, like, there'll be really bad oil or or kind of bad or non-existent mustard, and that's a really easy thing that I can just make. And it's unless you put dairy in, it's pretty stable. You can just sort of toss it in the back seat, strap it in, um, and then it's, it's ready so for when you get there. It's so smart, and it probably took you five minutes to mix together before you left the house in the morning. Now, note how I said that vinaigrette is fairly shelf-stable, which means you do not need a cooler. There came a time in my conversation with Kristen that we realized not only are we food editors telling you to actively not prepare much food for a trip, but we're also telling you that we don't really believe in coolers, which we realize is not a popular opinion. Still, none of our road trips have suffered for this. None of our adult road trips, anyway. I don't plan ahead and I don't have room for a cooler and I don't have a car and I don't have a garage. Like I don't have anything that would make this possible. But I also think I might have been scarred by my family road trips when I was a kid because when I was a teenager, my parents were really into the Atkins diet. And so they had basically a cooler full of cheese (laughs) and like meat snacks. And so and I was not I was not into that kind of stuff. I was probably, I don't know what I would have wanted to eat instead, like a nice, I don't know, Chinese chicken salad or something like that from the <laughs> Back in the 80s. Chili's. Not the 80s. I'm not that old. <laughs> no, this is like the late 90s. And um, I, I was just horrified because every time they'd open the cooler, the car would smell like 
salty meat and cheese. And I, I remember we were driving through Death Valley at one point, and I just rolled down the window and stuck my head out the window. <laughs> <laughs> just rolling through at, a, I don't know, 120 degrees outside. And this, and this meat cheese And I was smell just like, just... get me home. I don't want to be on this trip with my cheesy family anymore. So my family, my parents are the ones who bring a cooler everywhere. And they literally, I mean, it's like... It's wall-to-wall cheese in there and, like, maybe some celery and stuff to go with it. It's funny that you mentioned garage because it is such a garage thing. Mm -hmm. There's no home for a cooler unless it's a garage. And even so, like, I've owned a cooler here and there in my New York life and it's never felt quite right to put it in a closet because it it deserves to go in a garage. Um, Or if you did put it in a closet, you'd probably end up stuffing your winter coat and your boots yes. and all of that in there and then forgetting about them. Exactly. But there's also the thing where you pack the cooler and then the cooler is so big that it must go in the trunk. And then you're driving and what are you going to do? Pull over to like go unpack your thing? So then you get the like, don't make any sudden movements. I'm going to start crawling back in the car over the two seats and like try to see if I can find that weird plum that's at the very bottom. It's not a great system. The perils of a cooler. I know. (laughs) Who knew this would bring up so much emotion? So really, our advice is don't prepare. Don't bring a cooler. (laughs) Eat at Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) Seriously, though, eat at Dunkin' Donuts. I've discovered their late night menu. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, a lot of times it's really the only thing, you know, there will be long stretches of road where it's the only thing around. It's the only thing that's open at 1 a.m. Like. It's the best it's, of the worst. Yeah, it's the best of the worst. It'll it'll save you. Yeah. I mean, the thing is about road trips that you get to make a decision every moment of the road trip, kind of, and and with what comes along. And so that's, I guess, partly why I resist planning is that you, you know, you don't want to know all the roadside stops that you're going to hit along the way. You want to be able to make those decisions in the moment. I think when I've described unplanned road trips to people before they've they've said that I sounded like I was on mushrooms or something like I I I love the spontaneity of them so much that I think there's you know certainly room to you know allow yourself the combos allow yourself the the Doritos at the gas station then the next time you see a roadside stand and you get plums and all you eat is plums for an hour and then you you know find some random thing on an app on your phone that's like a little bit off the road and, but it has five stars, and so you want to go check that out. So, like, you know, having those moments to decide, and it doesn't matter what you did last, or, like, actually, maybe it does matter what you did last. It, it informs the next decision, but it's not something that you decided a week before you went on your trip. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So there's a beauty in both aspects of it, but certainly convenience store food and Slim Jims and the pizza you get from that weird little warmer thing that's next to the cash register. Like, there's beauty in all mm-hmm. of it. The hot dogs that are rolling around. The hot dog rotisserie. <laughs> yeah. To close out the show, I asked Brittany Luce from Gimlet's podcast sampler to help us out. If you haven't listened to her show, do. It's quite literally a podcast about podcasts. Brittany invites guests on for theme shows that tell us what we should be listening to. It's great, and I always learn something. I subscribe, and you should too. Here she is with some podcast recommendations for your future or current road trip. 
Hi, it's Brittany, and here are a few things that I have been listening to this summer. So first up is NPR's Code Switch podcast. Uh, it's an offshoot of their blog, which covers, I guess, the race beat. Um, I was a big fan of the blog, so I've been absolutely loving the podcast. Shout out NPR, shout out Code Switch. Second up is the podcast Imaginary Worlds. It's really, really good. It kind of goes in depth into different stories having to do with the fantasy and sci-fi genres. I absolutely recommend it. I've also been kind of obsessed lately with the sleepover podcast from CBC. Basically, the host, Sukian, invites three strangers of different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, you know, with different problems, different life stories from all over Canada to stay overnight in a hotel and just talk. So I highly recommend all three of those. Happy listening. And that is it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Thanks to Kristen McGlory and Sarah Jampel for joining me in the studio for this episode, and to Brittany Luce and her producer Sarah over at Gimlet. Thanks also to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, and also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter handle is at Food52, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Happy travels, and thanks for listening. <laughs>